profound implications on what do you do with people when they're not when they don't have the job they used to and how do you retrain them or uh, make their lives meaningful because those are explosive um, and disruptive implications and those who are you know advancing the technologies i think have underthought for obvious reasons the implications of introducing the technologies and that we're just going to sh shift to greater leisure um, which i you know i think is you know highly speculative that voice you heard there was that of Jim McGann. He is the director of the Think Tanks and Civil Societies program at the Wharton School and the School of Arts and Sciences of the University of Pennsylvania. He's our guest this week here on Radio Free Acton, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. My name is Mark Vandermoss. It's a pleasure to be your host once again here on the podcast. We will be talking a little bit about the world of think tanks, uh, kind of inside baseball for us here at Acton. We, we are a think tank, of course. Uh, but we exist as part of a, a, a whole universe of think tanks that are out there. And, and the think tank community has really grown in the last couple of decades. And Jim McGann is uh, a person who has dedicated a lot of his time to studying that world of think tanks and examining uh, what makes think tanks a good thing, uh, what makes think tanks more or less effective. Uh, and he's a great resource for us. And we hope that uh, talking with him uh, here on Radio Free Acton, you, our listeners, will get a great, a, a better idea of exactly what it is that the that think tanks are out there to accomplish, and and how uh, how you can go about finding good think tanks to support. And and, and we uh, we of course want to learn how to be a better think tank. So uh, we're always happy to have Jim McGann stop by here at the Acton Institute. It was great to have him in the building, and we were pleased to be able to pull him aside for an interview here on Radio Free Acton. We are also going to have uh, Bruce Edward Walker, our cultural correspondent and host of our Upstream segment. Uh, he is back in studio again this week, uh, along with Daniel Menjavar, producer extraordinaire, and Elizabeth Yeh, who is uh, one of our summer interns here at the Acton Institute this year. We always have a great crop of interns. Every summer, we bring in some great people from around the world. Elizabeth is one of them this year, and they're going to talk uh, about the recently released uh, Spider-Man movie, part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Spider-Man Homecoming. So that'll be coming up later on in this edition. Before we get to our interviews, however, I want to highlight an event we have coming up here at the Acton Institute. It's a, it's a sort of a downtime for everybody. It's late summer. Everybody wants to get their last camping trips in, you know, get some vacation time in, get a little relaxation in. Well, we've got a perfect lecture for you to come come down and enjoy for this this sort of end of summer, mid to end summer uh, time period that we're going through right now. It's going to be called The Hard Work of Leisure, Russell Kirk's Wisdom on Leisure Work and How Christians Can Best Impact Society. That lecture will be delivered by Seth Barty, who has been a visiting scholar since 2014 at the Russell Kirk Center for Cultural Renewal just up the road in McCosta, Michigan. We're in, looking forward to having Seth come in and talk with us the date of his lecture, August 10th. Uh, right here at the Acton Institute in downtown Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, doors will open up at 11.30 as usual, lecture at 12, and uh, of course Q&A after that, and uh, you register. Tickets are 15 bucks for the general public. Students will drop that price down to $10. Price includes a box lunch and a beverage, so come on down for some lunch, a little bit of intellectual stimulation, some great Q&A, and just visit us here at the Acton Institute. We love bringing people into our building and uh, having folks enjoy the facilities that we've been blessed with here in Grand Rapids. Uh, so without further ado, uh, now that that uh, housekeeping is out of the way, let's head over to our interview with Jim McGann, uh, Paul Bonicelli, our Director of Programs and, uh, and Education 
here at the Acton Institute. Joined me in studio to talk with Jim McGann about the world of think tanks. And uh, without further ado, let's get to that right here on Radio Free Acton, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. We're excited to have with us today on Radio Free Act and Jim McGann. He's a senior lecturer in international studies and director of the Think Tank and Civil Societies program at the University of Pennsylvania. Jim, uh, it's so great to have you here. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Also in studio with us today, Paul uh, Bonicelli, our director of programs and research here at the Acton Institute. Paul, always a pleasure to have you. Thank you. And Paul, I, I got to say, before we before we roll into this, congratulations to the programs department on another fantastic Acton University this year. It's been a it was a whirlwind, but uh, you got through it and did a did a great job again. Thank you so much. A lot of records this year, and uh, it was exhausting, but so worth it. Well, uh, Acton University is part of the work of the Acton Institute, which is of course a think tank. And Jim, you are. Uh, sort of an, sort of the expert uh, in the world of think tanks on think tanks. Uh, and I guess I want to open up with a question to you about uh, about think tanks in general. A lot of uh, a lot of people are very skeptical these days of basically any institution, any uh, power center, any authority. Uh, and think tanks are not immune to that sort of skepticism. And in the wake of the you know 2016 election, which was, chaotic and unprecedented in so many different uh, so many different ways the 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 entire world feels sort of uh topsy-turvy what what is the status right now of the world of think tanks well i, I mean i think part of the what's going on is uh you know for uh the after november um many think tanks were in a fetal position trying to understand uh, what just happened along Both, along with many other people yeah, actually on the left and 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 the right um, I think uh, what I have tried to do in, in terms of we I have an annual summit which Acton participates in of uh, think tanks in North America. And so the you know part of the question is what is you know what is happening and more importantly how to respond. So clearly um, politicians, pundits, think tanks miss the Trump phenomenon. More importantly, uh, from my perspective, missed what were the uh, undercurrents, um, uh, not just populism, but what what is beyond populism in terms of the core issues uh, that were driving um, and defining the election of 2016. Uh, and the purpose of that was to sort of say you really need to understand what ha- what just happened and figure out a, a, a response. And so, in part, uh, in in the the 2015 Global Go To Index, I've sort of outlined why. Um, Trump won, and what were some of these undercurrents, one of which I addressed in my talk today, in terms of a series of things that are created a sea of insecurity. And it's their policy issues um, or, or problems, and that policymakers need to, and think tanks need to help policymakers and the public understand them and figure out solutions. And think tanks play, I believe, a very important, critical role uh, in helping understand and define the problems, not uh, as we are finding out that simple explanations or simple proposed simple solutions really don't address these issues. Uh, And it feeds uh, uh, the discontent, the crisis of credibility uh, in government and elected officials, and we really have to change that. And think tanks, I believe, can play a critical role in helping um, 
bridge that gap. Yeah, you know, Jim, I um, we were talking about this earlier. I used to be a college professor and a provost, helped start some colleges, reform some. Think tanks were immensely important. Uh, and also in my work in government, um, in development, uh, which you've had a lot to do with as well, precisely because people working in think tanks at their best represent scholarly types. They don't all have to be you know, PhDs and, and wonks, but you need a healthy number of those people because of the way they go about gathering knowledge and using it. Think tanks can put it into a form usable for different audiences. Um, some people need it very simple for various reasons. Other people want it sort of in the middle somewhere. Um, and, and so it's almost like the best of times and worst of times. We have so much available to us in knowledge with the Internet, with the proliferation of think tanks, particularly at the state level, all the ones that exist now. And now we have them for counties uh, and regions. Um, but now we have the death of expertise. I don't know if you're familiar with Tom Nichols at the War College. He's yeah, written yeah, this book. Yeah. Um, we have people disdaining anyone who would dare to tell them that they know more, which is obvious. You know, if you're learning NASCAR and that's what you're interested in, you go to somebody who knows about NASCAR. You wouldn't say that they shouldn't be telling you anything about it. So there's sort of an elitism, populism thing going on here. But the great value for me was what I just described, but also the ability to step back from the policy process and from politics and be thoughtful. How can think tanks do that when, as you've described here uh, in your uh, remarks to Acton today, and you talk about this in your book, how can think tanks uh, represent objectivity even when many of them are going to still have their fundamental principles and say, we we start from belief that the free market's important, or we start from the belief that the state has a great role to play in economics, whatever it is. How can they do that um, even though they have core principles that they cannot uh, abandon? Well, I I mean, I think the reality is that we're coming, um, I hope, uh, closer to a realization that um, both and an election help bring that into focus, uh, that the challenges we face are real, they're very difficult, and that one party or liberals or conservatives don't have the answer. They don't have the truth. They don't have a corner on that. Um, And that there has to be... um, bipartisan approach, even though in this very politically charged partisan um, arena. But the paralysis that that has created, I think, has now led us to a point uh, where there is a need to bridge. Um, there is a need to sort of uh, re- uh, rely on the expertise, the gathered expertise we have. Most people don't realize how um, unique, how deeply embedded uh, in the American culture is a reliance on outside experts. Nowhere else in the world um, do countries rely on uh, independent institutions and experts in the way that the U.S. does. Uh, they would uh, you know, have a commission, the bureaucracy in, Ch- in Japan, Germany, France, um, U.K. If you are a bureaucrat, you have ascended literally in terms of Japan to heaven. Um, and so that there's a reverence. We have a very healthy distrust of bureaucracies. Um, Most people think that it's a Republican mantra that the government that governs best governs. At least it goes back to the inception of our republic. Um, And and so uh, we have reached the point, which I, you know, in terms of my talk today, um, think, you know, uh, the casualties in the war of ideas and think tanks potentially being those casualties, 
Um, I think that we need now to move, step back from the hyper-partisanship um, and come up with creative, uh, collaborative solutions across the aisle in terms of these problems. I think that the, the debate on you know, Trump versus Obamacare um, is, you know, the realization of that is that it's not an easy fix, that no um, solution, one solution, one size fits all, and that there has to be some uh, very careful consideration of the implications and how to develop innovative, flexible uh, solutions in terms of uh, what will be a very costly um, pr uh, issue in terms of health care. The reality, and you know, things that get missed, is demographics will itself uh, create very serious challenges in terms of health care. The point of this is, and I would point to and connect the experts um, and these challenges, if you look at as an example of where uh, what I'm talking about has worked um, and the importance and reliance on experts and think tanks specifically, there is no other issue I would suggest uh, that was as catastrophic um, and required a deep think uh, and s clear policy prescriptions as uh, the, uh, analyzing what happened on 9-11. If you look at that commission, if you look at the membership of that commission, it is both bipartisan, but the reliance was not on a um, government commission, but a group of outside experts, which is almost entirely composed of think tank executives, board members, founders. Um, that, I think, is important. Um, one, because they did a thorough analysis. Uh, they came up with a number of solutions that were acted on, not all of them, but it was a, a deep and effective think on a, probably the most critical policy challenge we face. I think that's exactly right. And, you know, um, you maybe have had this experience as well. Maybe it's what you do on occasion, but with undergraduates especially, when I would assign a research paper, I would tell them, give me research from two think tanks on the left, two on the in the center, and two on the right. No way they could miss a, an array of opinions. And that is one of the things I think about uh, think tanks, the role they can play, at least uh, in the United States, and I think they do in Europe to some degree, in developing countries as they proliferate. Of course, they're, they're still new in many of those places. But um, be willing as research and education organizations to publicly – dialogue with one another, to come at it the way they do, no no holds barred, but then discuss that. I think that's a real strength, uh, and, and, and if, to encourage that more and more. If, if people who are true consumers of information would insist upon that, I think it could make a big difference. It's precisely uh, every year um, for the last five years have organized a summit of North American think tanks, of which all of the major think tanks um, in uh, the U.S., uh, a, a good portion of them attend. And very consciously and at times, you know, against the headwinds of some of my colleagues, have made sure that um, there was a diversity of institutions. Because uh, I think one of the problems we have is that um, people are only talking to people. There are these echo chambers and circles uh, on Facebook and elsewhere where people are increasingly only connected to people that they agree with and that they listen to talk radio or television where they're, the people are, are saying the things that they agree with. And I think it's important not to be, you know, um, 
you know, a slugfest, but that there needs to be some dialogue. Right. And what I have found in terms of very critical issues, um, hot button issues, that people um, are comfortable and civil, um, even when they are, you know, in, an, in a very hyper partisan environment. And certainly after uh, the last election, I was very concerned about how I might proceed in terms of organizing the meeting. Um, and it was a very refreshing and positive discussion and getting people um, one face to face with one another, which, you know, I would point out that members of Congress have said that, that the fact that they don't uh, socialize or don't have uh, the level of interaction that they had historically is contributing to this polarization. I think it's the same thing in terms of think tanks is that the only that, you know, liberals only talk to liberals, conservatives only talk to conservatives. And I think that is part of what contributes to the problem. I, I think you're exactly right. I, I'm that rare creature. I'm a conservative Republican with an academic background who's worked in development for years at USAID and, and these other places. And I'm rare uh, in my background, but thrived in that environment and enjoyed it immensely because perhaps because as an academic and classically trained, I know that I'm not going to know as much as I need to know, ask the right questions, help solve the problems unless I am, the clash of ideas is happening. And sometimes maybe there are um, donors and board members who need to be encouraged. We're only going to be stronger with our fundamental positions if we're engaged that way. Let me um, take one more uh, opportunity to ask a question here, and I, I, we don't have a lot of time, but um, I wanted to ask this question and also commend to our listeners the Fifth Estate. It's, it is a, a, an excellent work that helps you understand the role of think tanks, because not a lot of people have written about this, but also some of the problems that they face. And um, if you uh, are, if, if you know about how politics in, in Washington, D.C. works, it will very much interest you because it's very, um, uh, without talking about bitter political battles, it's very much in tune to the way left and right and center and insiders and outsiders and all of that operate. This is the question. You talk a lot about the future, and the book talks about that. One um, element of the future could be with the implosion of higher education, with the debt problems, with reform secretaries like Betsy DeVos, with a lot of governors are trying to change things, Mitch Daniels and others involved. Is there a role in the future for think tanks to play in higher education, whether it's uh, trade schools, uh, whether it's uh, academic institutions, uh, that is, offering certificates or degrees or participating some. In other words, increasing their level of involvement and formality in higher education, because you do have all of these really smart people who do a lot of knowledge gathering. Well, I think. I mean, I think the reality is that um, there needs to be a big th rethink, not only in the U.S., but in other countries, uh, about education, of what uh, – you know what is what is required in terms of jobs of the future, um, and careers of the future, and how to prepare um, those who you know college is not going to help them at all, and the cost of that uh, may not be beneficial. But where uh, certain training and you know making sure that the training that's provided is not um, uh, you know dead end uh, and leaves people worse off than where they were. Um, so I think that uh, a creative rethink that looks to the future because technology um, is going to be uh, a very disruptive dimension and education and jobs are going to be most directly affected by that. 
And, you know, all of this, you know, how do you make the transition? What are the implications in the broader thing in terms of uh, driverless cars and trucks where, you know, 60,000 truck drivers or whatever the number is, which I think it's around 60,000, will be put out of out of work because they'll be able to have driver driverless tractor trailers. Right. Um, and so all of that has profound implications on what do you do with people when they're not when they don't have the job they used to, and how do you retrain them or uh, make their lives meaningful because those are explosive um, and disruptive implications. And those who are you know, advancing the technologies, I think, have underthought, for obvious reasons, the implications of introducing the technology and that we're just going to sh- shift to greater leisure, um, which I, you know, I think is you know, highly speculative. And so a broader sense of both the problems we have um, with it, the education system from K through college um, and what are the jobs of the future and how do we prepare and create an education system and allocate the resources for that in a way that's going to make um, both in the U.S. but in other countries, um, how you know uh, a productive, competitive workforce for the future. I think those are sort of the key questions. And once again, um, institutions that are focused on that uh, and think ta- a lot of think tanks are and are not just captured by either those who want to preach in terms of technology and what benefits it will have or in terms of, you know, the universities that have, a, you know, a particular um, agenda or unions that have a particular agenda. There's a range of interests that may shape that, but I think we need to be resistive, and that's where think tanks can help sort of say, you know, here's the total, but this is what we recommend based on, you know, a sound analysis of this a very important issue. Hey, Jim, before we wrap up, uh, for folks who are interested in the world of think tanks and, and, uh, and some of the work that you do, tell us a little bit about uh, the think tanks and civil societies program that uh, you work in in the University of Pennsylvania. What do you guys do? Well, I mean, there's a, a number of things. First uh, and foremost, <coughs> I have uh, uh, every uh, semester about 60 interns. Uh, so part of what I do is uh, train the next generation of think tank scholars and executives, and I'm very committed to that. It's sort of paying forward in terms of someone, um, in terms of since it's a context of Acton, a, a priest who was very influential in my life when I was 15, uh, who got me involved in, uh, in and gave me a leadership opportunity. So I make sure that, um, that one, I'm committed to giving back on that and, and training uh, future leaders and helping shape them. The second is we do um, both national and global research on think tanks and trends. Uh, and then finally, we rank, um, created a database and rank all of the, uh, or help rank all of the think tanks in the world uh, through peer and expert um, rankers, who um, over 5,000 who participate in the process and help identify key think tanks in every region of the world um, and in ma- and all of the major areas of public policy research, including education. If, uh, if you're list- interested in, uh, in finding out a little bit more about the world of think tanks uh, and how they work, how they influence public policy, uh, Jim's book is a fantastic place to start. It's called The Fifth Estate, Think Tanks, Public Policy and Governance. You can find it on Amazon.com, of course. And Jim, again, thank you so much for being with us today. We really appreciate the visit, and we wish you well in your work uh, over there at the University of Pennsylvania. Thank you very much. I uh, really appreciate the opportunity 
uh, after 27 years to come back to Grand Rapids and see how wonderful transformation has taken place. Well, we hope to see you again, Jim. Thank you very much. Hello and welcome to Upstream, where culture is way upstream from politics. And I am your host, Bruce Edward Walker, and today we will be discussing Spider-Man Homecoming. And in the studio with me, I have Daniel Menjavar. Hello. Hello, Daniel. Good to, good to see you again, and good to hear your mellifluous voice. Oh, it's always a pleasure. Thanks, Bruce. And to compliment Daniel's rugged individualism, <laughs> we have the demure Elizabeth Yeh, who is doing an internship at uh, Acton this summer. Hello, Elizabeth. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's a great pleasure. And uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. I understand you're from Fort Collins and you are a Brown University student. What's your major, Elizabeth? Uh, my major, major is economics and classics. And by classics, uh, Spider-Man Homecoming fits the bill? Oh, Definitely. I think this will go down in history. It's one of the classics, actually. Oh, well, fantastic. <laughs> well, this is uh, director John Watts, uh, first, uh, his inaugural, stepping into the director's chair for Spider-Man, and uh, he's already in talks to do a sequel to this. And this movie stars Tom Holland as Spider-Man, uh, Peter Parker, and uh, this is probably the youngest Peter Parker that we have seen on screen thus far and uh, his Aunt May is played by Marissa Tomei who is we are constantly reminded is very attractive and uh, that is one of the detractions that you that you noticed in in the movie Elizabeth and we'll get to that but uh, Daniel what did you think of the film oh I loved it it reminded me of Ferris Bueller's Day Off uh, which is other sort of teen rom-com movies of, of the 80s uh, so, uh, Teen Wolf was another one that came up. Uh, Fer- like I said, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Uh, sort of these uh, coming of age stories, which I think flows into the title Homecoming pretty well. Okay, so um, essentially we have an origin story that is not an origin story. Yeah, not, not an origin story. They they sort of skip over that that fact. I think. Right. You you miss out on Peter Parker's uncle dying and saying that uh, with great power comes great responsibility. You miss. The whole spider bite aspect of it and you're kind of like tossed into Peter Parker is now doing a internship with Tony Stark aka Iron Man and uh, so you don't have that long roller coaster uphill slog click 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 and which takes a half an hour of in most films. Yeah, at least. And so you you already st- start at the pinnacle where Spider-Man gets a suit and he says, okay, I'm going to start flinging webs all over the place. Well, yeah, I think it, it takes place sort of within the, a few movies into the Marvel timeline because I think the movie starts off with sort of a, a vlog of Peter Parker's uh, forays during Captain America Civil War. Uh, so we get to see sort of his side of, of, uh, of that conflict which is a, a great uh, intro to, to Peter Parker's character as well. Okay, well, we're going to raise the level from typical fanboy stuff that uh, Daniel and I like to do quite often uh, <laughs> because we, we actually have a, a, a Brown University student here who studies the classics who is going to discuss a little bit of 
about her blog that, that she wrote on this, and it's uh, Did Spider-Man Read Thomas Aquinas? And who knew Peter Parker was a Thomist? <laughs> well, um, I actually was thinking about this when I was reading uh, Joseph Pieper's Leisure, The Basis of Culture, like every intern does here at Acton, I'm sure. As I was reading, um, Pieper brings up this concept of intellectual work and the danger of intellectual work. Um, and this Kantian idea or this claim that all philosophy or all virtue has to be active, um, active work. And if there's toil and trouble involved, it's somehow worthwhile and virtuous. And anything that we do that is effortless or with ease is worthless. And immediately Spider-Man popped into my head because I think what I found so admirable about Spider-Man is his ability to instantly decide to help another or to do good. Um, and I think we see this most uh, strikingly at the end of the movie. I think what makes... We, we don't want to give away too many spoilers. <laughs> exactly. So stay tuned for what happens at the end of the movie. Um, but the essence of virtue, Thomas Aquinas says, consists in the good rather than in the difficult. Oh, you just gave it away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so Thomas Aquinas says the essence of virtue consists in the good rather than the difficult. Um and Pieper backs this up and says, in fact, the sublime achievements of moral goodness are characterized by effortlessness because it is of their essence to spring from love. And I think we definitely see this in Spider-Man, who's a mere child, basically, a 15-year-old boy who so effortly, effortlessly decides to do what is good, such as climbing an obelisk for his friends. And it's not, it's not the physical toil we see and say that is good. It's, it's his decision to do so in the first place. Well, yeah, I, I, I loved it when uh, he got what well, you say, the obelisk and it's, you know, I, I don't think we're giving anything away when we say it's the Washington monument. <laughs> and uh, I, I think that that, that was a, a terrific scene where uh, he, he basically had to pull a rabbit out of his hat in, in order to pull off that, that effort. It, it, it wasn't effortless for him, but it certainly was a lot easier for him than it would have been for anybody else. I, I do agree with you that uh, one of the thing is, you know, another thing that, that the, the Bible says is don't hide your talents under a bushel basket and, uh, you know, let your, your superhero flag fly. And, uh, and he does so. But, you know, he also experiences some uh, serious setbacks. And Tony Stark, who is his... Uh, superhero mentor basically reins him in for uh, more or less jumping the gun in his battle against the vulture played by Michael Keaton who basically uh, rejiggers his uh, Birdman character for a uh, mass audience. Oh yeah I, I would definitely agree I think um, virtue with virtue there is wisdom um, and it's this idea of like a situation calling for an action but the action has to be fitting and proper so it's not like a, an objective action is good it has to fit the situation and the timing so like for instance we see spider-man try to almost grow up too fast it's a coming of age story but coming of age at an appropriate time and so he starts like quitting all of his extracurriculars you see him like basically ditches decathlon team but then by the end of the movie you kind of see that he sees what is fitting and proper for his age. And I think that takes a sort of wisdom and also um, a guiding mentor, which kind of Tony Stark takes that position. Right. So not only is it anti-Kantian in its outlook, it's also anti-Nietzschean uh, Superman. And uh, which I, 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 
I caught that in the theater. So, oh, okay, well, this is fantastic because this is a flawed individual, but his flaw is basically just basic human immaturity. He's, he's uh, a burgeoning adolescent who uh, sees cute girls and, and wants to uh, be their boyfriend, and it, it's, it's charming and it's innocent, and that's one of the uh, aspects that would allow me to recommend this film as, as a family film because you, you learn a lot about uh, adolescent lessons. And uh, I, I think that comes across very, very well. Uh, you found certain things, as did I, inappropriate or perhaps maybe just not necessary in a film that um, every little boy and girl will be begging their parents to take them to see. Why don't you elaborate on that? I think this stood out to me so much because I saw the movie with my 11-year-old godson. And so I was just very conscious of what he was watching as a little boy. And there were kind of three things in particular that I didn't love. One was um, the porn reference. Ned, when he's uh, upstairs. Ned is his best friend. Yep, Ned is his best friend. And he's upstairs and he's he's doing this work for Spider-Man. And a teacher comes in and says... He's the, he's the man in the chair. Man in the chair, exactly. Yes. Um, and his teacher says, what, why aren't you at the dance? What are you doing up here, Ned? And he pauses and then says, I'm looking at porn. And the whole theater at that point just started bursting out laughing. And at that exact moment, I saw my godson turn to his dad and go... What is porn? I was like, how many parents are going to have to jump the gun with this conversation now? Um, because you cannot tell your little boy, I don't want you to see Spider-Man. I mean, every kid's going to be talking about this movie. And to use Spider-Man kind of slips something in there with, with the name of Spider-Man, I think, is, I don't know, a little low. Um, and then the bad word at the end of the movie, again, same thing. Everyone was laughing in the theater. My godson wouldn't, like stopped talking about it with his mom. His mom and him argued for the next 30 minutes about how bad words are not funny. Um, and then also just like little hidden references that um, about protesting and even um, when they see the Washington Monument and one of the girls goes, oh, I refuse to go into something built by slaves. And they just, they gloss that over. Um, and it was so one-sided, they glossed it over so it just seems so natural that any kid should be ashamed of one of our greatest monuments. That it commemorates one of our greatest presidents. Exactly. And, and you know, the, the thought that I came up with was, um, so if you had an opportunity to go inside the pyramids of Egypt, you would decline because they were built by slaves? Mm-hmm. Okay. That, it, it seems a, a little bit far-fetched. Okay, we're going to wrap this up. Daniel, do you have anything uh, to, to add to this? Well, before we do, th- I guess— Part of it is uh, talking about Michael Keaton's character. Uh, if there's anybody, I think I think this is probably one of their best villains uh, mm. that they've had in a long time. I, I don't think it's any spoiler. Uh, it's right at the beginning of the movie. Um, sort of his, his motivations is a hardworking man who gets turned away by sort of a, a, a corporatist a crony entity. Uh, taking away the, his job and the business that, that he built. Oh, that's a, that's a very good point. That's a very good point because he, he comes across to... Uh, libertarians as a pretty sympathetic character because essentially as you said he gets hosed by the the, the crony capitalism of the the government uh i think it's uh it's a cagney or lacy who uh tyne daly is the uh the the politician who kind of pushes her way in uh kind of uh, reminiscent of uh certain uh, crony capitalists that we see every day on uh our cable news channels and uh, very, very alarming. And Michael Keaton's character 
even when he's not the vulture, there's a scene, and I don't want to give away the spoiler, where he confronts him, Peter Parker, in a car, and as a teenage boy, dealing with uh, an adult male figure speaking to you in such a fashion, it is really enough to make you want to pull your hair out. It's it's terrifying. No, I I completely agree. I think uh, a lot of a lot of the some of the villains, I should say, in the Marvel universe. Uh, can be just a little one-sided sort of this is this is a bad guy and, and we just need to blow him up or uh, he wants he wants money he wants greed but uh michael keaton's character the vulture uh, in particular in both his personas as vulture or as as a regular businessman or person uh is just uh sympathetic a sympathetic villain a character you can understand um and one you sort of understand the motivations for uh more thoroughly i think than uh some previous of uh previous Marvel villains that we've seen. Oh, exactly. I mean, this this is the, the type of villain you would expect to see in a Christopher Nolan film. Uh, and what I like about it is you just didn't go to central casting and, and find someone who is going to, wants to up their, their stock in the, the movie trade by playing a, a, a villain, you know, who's going to be the, the nastiest Joker this week. This is a, a, a truly three-dimensional character and i think that's the the one of the first times we've ever seen that in a superhero film yeah exactly elizabeth you have something to add yeah i think in that way too this makes that this film classic versus romantic i mean um, a romantic film paints the good guys completely good and the bad guys completely bad and have these far-fetched notions but um the the root of like classicism i think is recognizing the good and the bad in each person and, and reality of um, kind of our fallen nature. And you see the good and the bad in both the, the villain and the hero in this movie. And you can relate to both of um, their fa- fla- fallen qualities and also the qualities that make them, um, I mean, good people as well. Well, terrific. Well, thank you for joining us, Elizabeth Ye, Daniel Menjivar. It's been a pleasure discussing this with you and uh, getting some new insights into Spider-Man Homecoming that – Don't make me feel so guilty and childish for really, really enjoying this film. For Upstream this week, my name is Bruce Edward Walker, and we'll talk to you again. Well, they say all good things come to an end, and uh, this is a good thing, and it has come to an end, this edition of Radio Free Acton. Uh, That's all for today. We want to thank our guests, uh, first of all, Jim McGann, for joining us. Uh, He is director of the Think Tanks and Civil Societies Program at the Wharton School and School of Arts and Sciences at the University of Pennsylvania. He is also the author of The Fifth Estate, Think Tanks, Public Policy and Governance, a fantastic book if you're at all interested in the world of think tanks, how they work, what they uh, intend to accomplish, how they can work better. Uh, It's a great book to look for. You can pick it up on Amazon.com, The Fifth Estate, Think Tanks, Public Policy and Governance. Thanks as well to Bruce Edward Walker once again for another great edition of Upstream. Uh, Thanks to Elizabeth Ye, our fine, fine intern, one of a great crop of interns again here at the Acton Institute. We've been blessed year upon year with uh, just great young people who come in and help us out with uh, Acton University and other projects. And 
Uh, Elizabeth is just one of many uh, great interns. She did a fine job today on Upstream. We appreciate her contribution. Thank you, Elizabeth. We salute you. Also, uh, thanks to Daniel Menjavar, our producer extraordinaire who pushes the buttons, turns the knobs, and makes things happen for us on a weekly basis here on Radio Free Acton. It would not move smoothly without his involvement these days, and we appreciate him as well. Thank you, Daniel, for all your hard work. Uh, be sure to subscribe to Radio Free Act, and if you have not done so already, you can do so on iTunes or Google Play, and uh, tell others about the show as well. Make sure if there's anyone out there that you know who might be interested in the work or the mission of the Acton Institute that you pass along some information on Radio Free Act and tell them to give us a listen. Uh, maybe they'll like us, maybe they'll subscribe and spread it a little further. A big part of the way that the message of Acton gets out there is through people telling other people about the work that we do. And we appreciate very much that you listen, and we hope that you'll share it with others who might be interested as well. In the meantime, that is the end of this edition of Radio Free Act, and thanks for joining us. We will talk to you again on future editions of the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. Have a good day, everybody. The Acton Institute in Grand Rapids, Michigan, has been promoting a free and virtuous society for over 25 years. Working with religious leaders, educators, business leaders, and students from all over the world, Acton is the connection between religion and business based on sound economic and moral principles. To support the great work that the Acton Institute does around the world, visit give.acton.org today. Again, that's give.acton.org.